0: FIA welcomes you to the Art Parlor, where visually impaired artists of all types will discuss their work. Pull up a chair, bring your beverage of choice, and listen to thoughtful, stimulating conversations with visually impaired artists in all media and from all parts of the world. And now, here are your hosts, Anne and Peter.
1: Welcome to the Art Parlor, brought to you by Friends in Art and the American Council of the Blind. Friends in Art is the place where visually impaired artists and audiences thrive. Join Friends in Art by visiting our newly designed and fully accessible website at www.friendsinart.org. Questions? Email president at friendsinart.org. I'm your host, Annie Ciappetta, and I'm joined by my co-host, Peter Ochol. This episode will be edited by Jason Castingway. In this episode of the Art Parlor, we speak with artist and advocate Jennifer Justice, You may remember her from the 2022 ACB and Friends in Art, Art of Disability Workshop, where she and four other West Coast artists discussed curation and exhibition practices and how to design exhibitions to include both artists and visitors with disabilities. Jennifer will also talk to us about her contribution in a recently released academic textbook called Curating Access, Disability, Art Activism, and Creative Accommodation, edited and written by Amanda Caccia. Jennifer, thanks for being here. Jennifer was part of our non-traditional artists, the Art of Disability panel in June, And that was a really great panel and I learned a lot from you and your colleagues about art and curation and um, all of that. It just really opened my eyes to this part of our culture that uh, crosses over with disability and, and art and presentation and I think it's worth exploring way more than it has been in the past, especially with blindness organizations or organizations that that want to, um, you know, be more accessible and more equitable about offering people with disabilities equal access to art. Yes. yes. Yeah.
2: It's, a, it's an exciting time to be working with museums and, and public spaces, cultural spaces around accessibility. Um, I, I think there's so much more interest and knowledge uh, sharing going on than there has been in the past. And I'm, I'm pretty excited about it.
1: Yeah, so am I. We may be talking more <laughs> as the <laughs> year goes on and as things progress. So Jennifer, could you give us your official title and what you do for a living, pay the bills, etc.? Yeah, right.
2: Yes. So I'm an artist and writer and My day job is Access Technology Specialist for Mendocino Community College in Northern California.
1: Oh, thank you. So now I'd like to dive a little bit about the book that you mentioned before the recording. It's an academic textbook, I think. Is that how you would kind of describe it? Yes. yes. Okay. Definitely um,
2: the way I understand it, the you know, the um editor Amanda Caccia, it's the, the the audience is certainly curators, assuming that they are able-bodied curators, but not necessarily because a lot of the people in the book are curators themselves, um, disabled curators and artists, exclusively, you know, disabled artists right. and but it's written in a way that's very, I think, very accessible or somewhat accessible for people that aren't used to reading academic type books, you know. Um, Well, I I
3: hope it's accessible, but maybe. (laughs) So let's start from the very beginning of this. What is a curator?
2: A curator is someone who designs exhibitions in museums. So they decide what artworks or relics or historic items, documents go into an ex- any exhibit in a museum space or a gallery space. Okay.
1: Curator, and this, so this book curating access is all part of that. Terms- yeah.
2: Cur- so curating access is me is referring to a process of creating Creative solutions to provide access that's not just about legal ADA standards like doors a certain width wide or, you know, providing braille and um, large print, but also providing aesthetic experiences that are accessible and fun and engaging for different audiences. So, for example, you know, tactile art would be a, you know, a big, a big part of that for me and my woodworking and 3D printing, um, I, you know, my work is meant to be handled or the work I've made in the past few years has been meant has been very much about being handled. Also, you know, like sound art is becoming a lot more popular in museum mm-hmm. spaces. Um, right. There was there was a big exhibit of uh, retrospective of Barbara Kruger at the Art Institute of Chicago last year. It had really excellent audio description, as well as a lot of audio throughout the exhibit that I thought was pretty terrific for providing access in, in a in a way that for especially for a show that's very it was a show that's very driven by graphic design imagery inspired graphic interesting design, graphic design inspired imagery I should say okay <laughs> yes yeah, So, but when you open the museum door you you. You got this fun like audio experience from opening the the actual outside door to the museum. That was a Barbara Kruger sound bit. So they were doing things like that throughout the exhibit. So I thought it was a really fun, you know,
1: generous thing to include. Yeah. Let me ask you something. The um the subtitle of the book curating access is disability art activism and creative accommodation. Could you explain the subtitle a little bit more, tease that out for us? Yeah. Creative accommodation.
2: It's very basically what I was referring to before. It's making artwork accessible for disabled community members in a way that's not just about meeting ADA standards, legal standards, but about making aesthetic choices that make the work more
1: engaging. Right. Yeah, it does. Uh, and so tell us a little bit about your art, what you create, how you create, what textiles or mediums you use, and why it's really important that you want people to touch your art. Yeah.
2: Well, I want people to be able to engage with my work in a variety of, you know, with from a variety of different um, entry points. And when I was in art school a long time ago, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I was, not that long ago but um, yeah. it', it it's, start, it's starting to feel like a long time. I was a painter I started out as a painter. Um, I'm legally blind so I have some vision but I wanted to be able to t- talk about disability in my work and um, I'm also a, ha- a little hard of hearing and I have anxiety and it seemed to me that it was really, difficult for my instructors and my fellow students it it was difficult for them to um, find language to talk about the work and even the visual work you know and I I, that made me really uncomfortable so I thought I need to start you know reaching out to my community and so I met some uh, I I met a blind woodworker uh, and he was making these beautiful sculptures and you know that were very they're very much very sensual very much very meant to be touched and ex- and enjoyed in that way right. and that really opened up that possibility to me so I, I became more interested in sculpture and woodworking wood turning and um you know getting finishes that are really sleek and and enjoyable to touch and working with other materials that are you know enjoyed and that are enjoyable in that way and so that was where that was how the direction shifted. Um, at the same time, you know, technology has, you know, been just really expanding and, you know, we have, you know, 3D
1: printing now, right? So Right, right. You and mentioned that. It, I was wondering yes. how that changes how you create. Does it make it easier? Yes. It make it easier? Yes.
2: Yeah, yes. Yeah, I mean, you know, when you're woodworking, you feel like, you know, you're, you're engaging in this practice that has been around for thousands of years, right? right? Right. It's slow. It is a slow medium. So it takes, you know, it takes hours or days or weeks or months, depending on what you're doing to fulfill your piece, you know, for it to really shine, depending on, depending on the work. Um, right. the printing is so, is such a quick turnover because you, You know, you have a a file and you can send it to the printer and they print it up and, or you can print it yourself and it, you have it within a couple of hours and it's just like a, a very immediate process. So mass reproduce things. And of course there's been other, there's been technology that can, you know, in the past, you know, or before 3d printing that can make that happen, but you kind of have to have an, it was, it was not, you would have to find somebody that you could work with that that had access to a facility, like a, like a commercial facility for mass production of items. So having the software and 3d printers that you can even have in your own home or, you know, at a library or at a school that you can access and print stuff is, is a nice, is really nice. And much more accessible.
1: Yeah. So I'm just curious, I mean, on average, how big are your pieces in general? Are they, you know, I mean, tabletop size or do you need a larger exhibition area? Um, Yeah. And I'm thinking of the one, you know, the bucket with the chains of raindrops. And so, yeah. So I'm wondering like, you know, what's, how big is that? What's that, you know, just like a, get like a non-visual. Sure. Sure, Description.
2: It, sure. That one is it's generally when it's shown, it's shown, it's hung from the ceiling. So the raindrops, the raindrops, the, the rain and the uh, there's a bucket, it's like a bucket lid, and it, the raindrops cascade down from the you know, from that um, lip. And um, so it's when you're standing in front of it, I don't have the exact dimensions in front of me, but it's about um, eight feet tall. And then the raindrops cascade down to in a, in a space that's about two feet wide uh, in okay. front of you. And so they go right. down to about within a foot of the floor. So it's sort of like standing under, you can, if you were to stand, just walk right into it, like, which you can, it, it's like standing under a shower. Oh,
1: <laughs> yeah. So that yeah, that's, that's a- like, yeah, it's a really cool experience that right. or you
2: can like put your hands in it and like it's like um, it's sort of like a cleansing feeling and the, um, the raindrops, the wood raindrops are um, very smooth. They've been sanded and uh, finished really to a really smooth finish. And mm-hmm. um, so they're very, they're very, very, they're like very smooth, very glass like and then the they're attached by uh, ball chain. Which is yeah, kind of like, I mean, like ball chain, like dog tags, right? That, yeah, that yeah. Is, that's what most people think of it. I, th- I think that that's a really tactile point of of common common point of you know access for people. So the ball chain is really cold to the touch, and it's also very rain like,
1: right? And it's yeah. It oh, was thank you ghost. for thank you for say for for mentioning that because I I keep going back to that sculpture. And I keep thinking to myself, this would be really cool to actually experience. In one of our past conversations, as a matter of fact, you said that a kid had actually modified your sculpture. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So could you talk about that again? I think that's really funny. It
2: was really sweet. The gallery that we were working with on disability arts in the Bay Area, we were uh, we had the show at the Palo Alto Arts Center. And they had never had an, a show there that was that committed to access in terms of tactility. So they were a little concerned about things getting damaged. And we were just... Right. So you have our you know we made it very clear that everyone had their permission to touch the work um but they they were you know they're they're nervous about it you know sure. they've, yeah. been trained, they've been trained you know in, in you know the no touch mm-hmm. you know don't do not touch you know that that was their training um as art historians and curators and but this uh i so i you know, made it clear to them that it was fine, right? And so, one morning, one of the curators came in, and a kid, a little kid, had braided the the uh, <laughs> raindrops. Like they had just got, stood under it and like done this really intricate braid of all of the raindrop drops, you know, and with the chain. And uh, and they were like, "Oh, I hope that's okay." And I was like, "No, that's great. That's what they're supposed to do. <laughs> I want them to engage with it. So that's Aww. perfect."
3: Very, very it's a, it's so, a great so story. I I'm curious. You 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 mentioned the, the term sensual touch. What do you no, think, I think they, sensual? Sensual. but that, that, that's what I thought I said. Um yeah. uh, so, so what in your opinion, and this is a clearly subjective question, makes something a touch sensual? Uh, uh, you know, a, a, a sculpture or a wood carving or something. What do you think what do you think makes that sensual?
2: Yes. Um, well, I, I think you know, I, I I would just say anything that's enjoyable, pleasurable, you know, as opposed pleasurable, it may be something that has some kind of intimate reaction for the viewer. Like the, like you have something like maybe it sets off a memory for you or, uh, of, of something pleasant that you've touched in the past, like a necklace or, a. Um, or your or a grandmother's sweater or um you know, just something that i mean that you know it can be very broadly construed to be, to mean you know anything that has an intimate pleasurable attachment to it yeah, so it doesn't have to be i mean it can be sensual in the more traditional sense. I wouldn't call my raindrop sculpture well I guess it's kind of sensual, but i i I guess um I was I created that work after the wildfires that destroyed a lot of uh, destroyed property and and uh, people's homes and and animals and, and and people and you know caused some deaths in Northern California. So I I, I certainly wasn't coming at it from a at that time. I, I really wasn't coming at it from a you know more ple It, it came from a source of pain, but it sure. it it sort of. The result was of aesthetic, pleasurable, healing. Uh, yeah, sens- they're sens- very
1: much <laughs> entwined: pleasure and pain, you know, <laughs> yeah. healing and loss. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, for sure.
3: No, I just find that fascinating that, that you talk about the genesis of that piece and the way you describe it. People standing under it and getting, you know, uh, reined upon, so to speak. You mm-hmm. know, it strikes me as a very sensuous kind of experience. I haven't, I haven't seen your your thing, but it strikes me as a very, you know, people. Unless it's a driving rainstorm, people, you know, it's kind of nice to be in a, in a warm rain where it's sort of gentle, right? It's, it's right, not, right. Yeah. So yeah. it's interesting. Um, This happens in music a lot too. Where composers aim for one thing and end up going in a very different direction.
2: Right. Exactly. Oh, I, and I'm certainly not. You know, I haven't really tactile art wasn't invented by me by any means. You know, right? you could say that. You know, lace work is tactile. You know, going back you know and 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 lathe turning ceramics pottery you know all of those have always had tactile properties so it's something that we've always had uh, you know it's it's an aesthetic element that we've always that we've had for centuries you know since the beginning of time but it's only in the the creation of the modern museum that vision was became the primary point of entry. So um, that was like maybe 200, like 300 years old. So that's a very short period of time in which vision became dominant in how we interact with museums and artwork in general. So um, I, we're almost like it's an outlier in terms of like the, the grand scale of history. So i
3: would so, like through. Go ahead, Peter turn a corner and I'm really curious about the sort of curator piece and what I'd like us to think about as a threesome, especially uh, is this whole idea. So supposing I'm a curator and I've been asked to uh, create some kind of an art event featuring, uh, I'm going to make this up, featuring Missouri art artists of the uh, late 19th, early 20th century. Okay. So Uh I've been asked to do this, Uh, you know, and so talk to me uh, as a curator as I'm putting this together, what kinds of things should I think about to make this experience more aesthetically uh, accessible and, and pleasurable to people with disabilities?
2: Right. Is, yeah, that's a great uh, question. I would certainly think beyond painting. You know, I would I I would think about um, handcrafts, especially for Missouri. You know, you think about that time frame, early, tw- late nineteenth. 19- Century, early 20th century. I think that uh, that you know, handmade furniture would have been a big part of the scene in Missouri at that time. And it's really easy to to create soundscapes. That um, I think it would be fun to do, like a historic soundscape from that that would reflect that time. So maybe you'd have horses horse drawn you'd have audio you could do like audio horse drawn carriages and chickens and like a like a county fair maybe right yeah and for painting you could offer audio description accessible on a smartphone or um through a headset so that you know that's that's been done. We're, we're all pretty familiar with that, but we can also consider music from that time period. Uh, maybe the, you know, the kind of music that would have been popular in Missouri at that time. And, you know, you could go as regional as you, you know, you could do a regional selection of, of music. There is, I, I had the pleasure of going to the new African-American Museum of Music in Nashville this summer and it was really, it was a very interesting, uh, very novel experience in terms of a museum because it was so, it was, it was very, it was, you know, it was all about the music, right? And they had, they did have some traditional exhibits of, of you know, like guitars and items that belong to famous, you know, blues musicians or, or rock musicians, but mostly it was just, uh, getting people connected to the music using some new devices, tech devices that would let you send the music to your email account so that you could listen whenever, when when you get home, you know, and, and discover oh, wow. new musicians that you weren't familiar with. I think we've really, uh, the, the, the traditional um, Western museum has, you know, white, you know, Europe, European museum is really, um, limited itself in terms of how it en- engages with the art with the arts you know and I, I'd say the arts uh, plural not just visual art but there's craft and music and clothing and yeah the you know, there's mix, just so mix, much there's, mixed
1: there's fibers and beading mm-hmm. and all yeah. kinds of you know, costuming and um uh, yeah. yeah, I remember we went to the Erie Canal Museum, the Canal Museum, and one of the immersive experiences was uh, was to put on headphones and and listen to what it was like to be on a canal boat. Mm-hmm. Um, and, oh, nice! And, um, and all the yeah, and it was it, it it was great because I got to understand you know what they meant uh, by you know all you know how to how they lived and everything was. Just so well done hearing mm-hmm. the footsteps going down and up and the kids crying and the lapping waves and everything. It was just it was wonderful. Right. Yeah.
2: That oh that's really that's so cool. Yeah. yeah, and I know artists who are working with spatial audio a blind artist, um Andy Slater. He's working with at his uh tech company, they're working on spatial audio for that very purpose, you know, in museums and for public spaces. Now I, I am deaf in my right ear. So I, I tell people my access to audio is all in mono. So I, I don't really, for me, that that experience might not be as dynamic as it would for people with, you know, standard hearing, but I still find audio tours really interesting when they include, you know, not just a talking head or talking voice right right uh, talking mouth <laughs> you know um I, I think it's a lot more generous measure to assume that the person who is experiencing the audio description or tour ha- brings something their own knowledge to the table and you know it I think that it's better if you're not talked down to or treated like you don't know Anything about the topic, but to just ha- assume that they're someone who is going to want to have a, a rich aesthetic experience, just like any
1: anybody else. Right. Let me let me ask you something about going back to the curator piece. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe Peter can help me tease this out a little bit too. How are curators trained? I mean, are they trained in accessibility? Is it is it something that's part of their program, or is it? Is it more uh, like regional or or micro-focused, depending on where you where you intern or, or what, pro, you know, what, um, yes. I, yeah. I think I just, it
2: I think it's depends on the, you know, I think it would depend on the program. I think certain, it's not mandatory. And you know what, neither, hmm. it, it's not, Interesting. <laughs> accessibility training isn't mandatory anywhere, right? It's not for yeah. in design. It's an afterthought. An afterthought in just yeah. you know, in IT in um, computer yeah. science degrees and design degrees, I think you have to find people to work with that are really committed to the topic, like right. um, you know, and, and they will say that's one of their research interests, like they will say that you know, museum ac- access is one of their research interests, and you know, maybe that's someone you would want to work with in if you were in school. Go, you know, if you're going to school to be trained as a curator, but it's hit or miss and it, but it, I can say that it's so much better than it was 20 years ago. There's so much more of an interest in uh, access that goes beyond, you know, legal standards. Um, and of course any museum that receives federal funding has to provide the ADA required, you know, access. Right. Yeah. Um, but that certainly doesn't include tactile art or access to it's very hit or miss. Right. Um, And, but I would say that there, there's a lot of interest in, um, I I've been really impressed with what I've seen coming out of the schools in the UK. There's a lot of interest in accessibility that that goes beyond, um, you know, just, uh, legal standards and, um, a, i mean is there hope for the future <laughs> With, you know, the younger I mean, curators I mean, and, and yeah and then there's uh amanda Kachia is that is a she the one the editor of the book you know she uh she teaches in southern california and yeah so there's definitely people out there there's um let's see sarah Hendren is in massachusetts um yeah, there there's me. There's there's those of us that are, you know, preaching the good I word. It.
1: Evangelizing. I, yes, I hate so, that term. I know, but it's a but I, I know but it's a perfect word though, because it, it does. I don't really want to be like I I, <laughs> I
2: grew up in Alabama and I the last thing I wanted to be was an evangelist. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, oh, and there's Fran Osborne is at San Francisco State University. Um, but I think I, the, it, I've really been impressed with what's coming out of England. And um, mm-hmm. you, I would wow. say it's helpful to look for a school that has a disability studies program or at least disability studies scholars, um, because they're bringing with with that will come the social model of disability and understand right. that it's not just about. You know, it's it's not a medical problem. It's not a mm-hmm. it's not a legal problem. It's a social issue, and it's a social justice issue. Yes, and it's a
1: it's cultural great, a cultural yeah exactly consideration. Yes, totally. yes. So, so I so get it onto that. I wanted to ask you, like, okay, we mentioned San Francisco, we mentioned Chicago, Massachusetts, and then New York. Those to me are the 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 centers of of um of, of um exhibition access you know in in terms of being the giants right so uh, uh, what who's the most progressive out of all of them i mean uh, i'm taking the uk out of it <laughs> right, right. <laughs> they seem to be above us in so many things um <laughs> in access yeah. but like is there a difference between the the east coast and the west coast and and the progression of uh, acceptance and and getting the cultural standards up or what do you um,
0: think?
1: I would.
2: I. I can't. You know. I have been living in the Bay Area for the past ten years, so I can't really. I, I haven't really. I've been pretty local for the for a while. So I would say um, it, it would seem like historically um, in recent history, I would say that the the Bay Area was leading the way. But it, I don't. I think that's because of the tech industry
1: um yeah that might have a lot to do with it too the tech yeah.
2: industry and the dis and disability study and disability history uh the, the history of disability activism in berkeley in the bay area right but i think that now thing i, I see a lot of great stuff coming out of new york now and chicago and, and mass you know boston and mm-hmm. any regional play, regional spaces now so i i think that it's getting and it, you know. I would say Minneapolis probably, and I think that um, you know things are opening up a little more, and people are becoming more. I think also um, audience members are are asking for more. You know, people are are demanding more of their institutions, and uh, and people are willing to respond to that. Yeah.
3: So I'm thinking about my experiences in museums as a totally blind guy. <laughs> and my, my mom would sort of drag me into these museums, you know, to sort of give me a sense of what museums were. But uh-huh. that's actually, I found to be an utter waste of time. You know, I'm being very blunt about that. And now this was a long time ago, of course.
2: Right. And, right.
3: and, and what, what I'm thinking about is this whole issue of how, how do you persuade people with disabilities that museums are for them? I mean, you, you, we're obviously talking about that now, but it's sort of a difficult thing, I would imagine. To get people like me through the doors of a museum again, because we've had such negative experiences with them, you know, it's sort of a you take your your, you take your pill because you have to growing up as a blind guy to integrate (laughs) into into society. It's but you know, I mean, the truth of the matter is, you know, I I would happily never go to another museum again. And I appreciate what, what you know what you're talking about. You know, make you know integrating the the various art you know art media right and all those kinds of things. And so I I guess my question is, how do curators, you know, in addition to sort of making this stuff more interesting for people with disabilities, and by the way, for other people as well, that's what universal design is all about, um, how, how how do they sort of reach out to people, you know, who don't have that experience of walking through a museum door? You understand the question I'm asking. It's an outreach. I would imagine it's an outreach outreach process as well as a design process.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, um, one thing that curators can do is hire uh, disabled artists to populate their museums with artwork uh, for disabled people, and um, that's happening. Um, you know, I've been a part involved in um, uh, uh, experiences. Um, artist fan, Debbie from Australia, um, has done a couple of um, exhibits in the Bay Area that were designed for blind art enthusiasts. And I think that it really has to start from a place of ownership. You know, I think that it's really Mm. important to have blind or not blind, but disabled artists, you know, making the work and, and being featured in museums. And also providing, you know, not just, I mean, it, it makes no sense. I agree with you. It makes no sense at all to, have, to ask a blind person to go into a museum if they can't touch anything or experience anything. So you have to think about how your audience can participate in ways that have nothing to do with vision. You know, maybe, you know, like, you know, if, you, if the issue with a lot of historic. Places is that they're worried about preservation, right? So mm-hmm. why not hire a, a, a carpenter to recreate an item from in a in a style in an earlier style? And have that on view, uh, like a oh you know, like a model of yeah, something. Yeah, like yeah. you could hire or something. Yeah. A a fine, yeah, hire a fine woodworker to create like a desk, you know, that's from like the Baroque period or whatever, and 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 have that on display that people can engage with. And you know, you can you can make recreations of anything, you know, um, from another period. You just have to reach out and find a person that is skilled in that. You know, right. In that kind of and there and there are artists out there, and I think that a good curator knows how to look for you know talent or or artists Mm. that can fulfill those kinds of you know needs, and and of course that would become part of the funding. You know, um, would be um, providing you know just designing that into the exhibit.
3: Uh, Before this program ends, I want to ask you a question because I, I I heard with interest that you are. Your, your job is as it is is uh, uh, dealing with assistive technology accessibility at a community college yes and you, and then you do this work um you know with uh curators um and of course you're an artist yourself uh-huh. i'm really intrigued by sort of the the connection between the two and what i'm especially interested in is given the problem we're all having with digital technology you know we we could talk about that for the next 3 hours <laughs> but of course we won't <laughs> um, but but, I'm sort of curious to to know from you what you think the skills are that, that you know that are sort of transferable from one to the other. that is you 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 do these two different kinds of things you you work with curators, you work you you work with assistive technology. Well how, how similar what are the sort of skill sets that you that you that you use to work with both groups of people who I'd imagine are quite different?
2: Yeah, um that's a good question. Also, um, I, well, I work with disabled students and I work with, you know, uh, I work sometimes with disabled faculty and staff, Um, but, you know, most of the people, most of the staff at my community college, you know, appear, you know, Mm able-bodied. So it's, uh, you know, let's see. So getting, I would say that a transferable skill would be optimism, you know, positivity, a willingness to solve problem solve and adaptability and just having a universal design mindset, you know, um, having a, having a nimble and universal design mindset. Like i you know, I I think how do we make this accessible and how do we make it interesting, and and how can we make there be how how do we create ease of use for the student or the art the museum goer? You know, mm-hmm. uh, these are the questions. that are really foundational to what I do, either at you know my in my work in access technology or um, with curators.
3: And I would imagine uh, that the whole concept of universal design. Is as I understand it, uh, is is that what makes things accessible to uh, to people with disabilities often makes it much easier or much more easier to use for people without disabilities, right? Yeah, uh, Or or, or, make, or makes it more interesting for people without disabilities. And I would imagine, you know, as uh, one of the things I'd be tempted to do if I were a curator, which fortunately I'm not, is I would say, <laughs> hey, you know, not not only is this. um you know, is this make more accessible for people with disabilities? It will, it will make the whole experience for everybody else much more interesting.
2: Right, exactly. And um, I I feel like, you know, one of the great, one of the things I like about working at the community college uh, system is that it is, it is a very um, welcoming, inclusive place. Um, It's not a meritocracy. Um, They want people to get an, you know, they want the public to get an education, a higher education. So it's, that is the mindset is that we are trying to make education, you know, attainable for everybody. So, and, and so much of uh, what I do is um, in terms of usability, it, you know, is transferable, is translatable to, yeah. to that goal. Yeah. Yeah. Right
3: No, I, I, it, I, I will, I, it, um, I think, I think, I think the work you do is really important Because I think we in the advocacy arena are spending way too much time, you know, uh, trying to get laws passed. You know, I noticed you haven't said one word uh, in your work with curators about, you know, except the ADA in very general terms about, you know, we need need, need to get a law passed to make this stuff more accessible. Maybe we do, but it seems to me you're not doing the law. You're working with people uh, and, you know, on both sides, right, on both technology and to make things better. And I yeah. think we we as advocates need to need, need to get our hands dirtier with with yes. the folks actually doing the work than than just passing laws.
2: Yeah. Um, yes. Well, yeah. you know, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not interested in you know, <laughs> that, that wasn't an area that I was interested in. I just uh, you know, it wasn't for me, you know. I, I'm I'm definitely an artist in, in terms of how I think and, and engage with the world, but. I certainly. I mean, I would certainly be open to, you know, expanding the ADA. I mean, absolutely. Like, you know, I, I feel like we could. It. It has. I don't feel like the law does enough. You know, I really do think that it needs to be updated, and um, and that's for legal scholars and 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 you know policymakers and, right. uh, you know, that's for those guys to you know to suss out and I'm you know I'm all for it please you know (laughs) please you know by all means you know um but in the meantime uh I you know and as you know my whole life right I was this kid who loved art who felt like I wasn't I didn't quite belong in a space and I just I just said I don't care like I belong here and I think that there's this sense the sense of for us people in in Art, dis- disabled art community all share that feeling of you know I don't think so actually I do belong here and here's what I want to contribute here's what I have to contribute here's what I um here's my meet you know here's my work and let's see what how we can work together um so you do you do sort of become your own publicist in a way um and just stubbornly keep you know at it I wish you know I think wow wouldn't it be great if I didn't have to you know um you know if I if I didn't have to work so hard (laughs) (laughs) like wouldn't it be great if that was already if you know accessible standards met my standards you know wouldn't that be great and I think about you know wouldn't it be great if we had a a museum a disabled artist? Like a museum of disability and art, or a museum of disability history, and what you know, where we could you know design it and and have our own and arrive at the best standards as we see fit, you know, um, and that would require you know people you know investing in something like that, and that's not a reality yet, but I hope it will be in our lifetime.
3: Well, your comment reminds me of so many artists whether they be visual or musicians or poets or fill in the blank had some kind, many of them had serious psychiatric disabilities, you know, depression, um, you know, the drill, I'm sure, you know, and that's, that all ties in, I think, to some of the work these folks did, you know, they they looked at the world a little bit differently. And I think yeah. that, that's, a, that's an important story to tell, I think, actually.
2: Yeah. You know, I think disability is a big part of the arts, the story of the arts and it, whether it's music uh, you know blues musicians um and jazz musicians throughout you know that history or artists uh, like you know uh liter- literary figures like virginia wolf or um artists uh you know visual artists um you know i mean everybody says everybody goes to man go of course um but you know like I, that's that's uh that's sort of the mythos behind him but you know there's more to that i i think that there's a lot to be said for someone like um i was just watching the andy warhol diaries and oh yeah he you know he was a working class kid uh with came from an immigrant family very um you know a, a
1: gay guy a very
2: you know he was uh,
1: eccentric and driven at the same time yeah like, and he, he was,
2: yeah and he was he felt very different. You know, I think he felt very isolated um, in Pittsburgh, where he came from. And I think that that sense of um, just not being, feeling like a misfit when he was growing up, I seemed to, you know, drive him to to, yeah. to want to, you know, be part of the, part of the, you know, the New York scene and, and make the, and, you know, like influence the New York scene. And that was, and it's a very, so there's also queer you know there's queer identity and um and uh, uh you know artists of color um have been just gross and women artists have just been grossly um underrepresented yeah uh, uh, indigenous artists have all been just grossly underrepresented in the arts and and there are lots of there are you know many, Political channels working to change that at this moment, and I, I want to, I, I hope that we continue that momentum.
3: So, what are your plans for the future?
1: I mean, yeah, I was going to ask. So, what's what's in the future for you? Are you creating? Are you exhibiting? What's going on? Yeah,
2: I'm making. I'm I'm painting. I actually painting. And i actually have two paintings that are going to have also be. I've also been. I write stick poetry. So, audio like poetry that's very visually a lot of visual language a lot of um uh it's a it's a like an audio description in poetic form so the the right. descriptions will go will accompany the paintings um and that was I just thought, I haven't painted in years I think I'll you know I just wanted to up <laughs> again I was like I don't have to not paint you know just because I'm a you know disabled you know like <laughs> just because I'm interested in access doesn't mean I, I don't, you know, like I can still be a painter, you know, you know, uh, like my friend um, uh, Catherine Leche, you know, Chong and others. So I've been doing that and that that's going to be in an exhibit in the summer of 23 in Melbourne, Australia. Um, Wonderful. Wonderful. Deacon, I think it's Deakin University is the is the location of the gallery. Um and I'm also I've also been hired by the uh, Leonardo CrypTech Incubator in San Francisco uh to, to run a user experience uh research study uh on um where we, we're gathering a cohort of disabled artists and we're gonna have them collaborate with vr and xr makers of vr and xr technology to try to make it to bring it into a more accessible um you know in, in, to to bring it into a more accessible universally designed you know um, so we know
3: what vr is besides vocation rehabilitation Virtual reality what is xr
2: xr oh i think that's just that's uh, I think it means extra real. It, it's kind of a fancy word. I don't know. It's I think it's meant to include augmented reality, virtual reality, and spatial audio. Spatial,
1: okay. Oh yeah.
2: wow. Yeah. It's kind of like it's like that word metaverse. It's one of those buzzwords. <laughs> <laughs> like when they sent out the call and they asked me to participate they used the word metaverse and I was like ah uh, no I don't want to work with Facebook <laughs> and they were like no no not that metaverse <laughs> I was like yeah I don't I'm not impressed with metas you know accessibility so they were like no it won't be Facebook so um I we were like okay maybe we can we can work with it we'll work it out
3: <laughs> well Facebook metaverse is in fact doing a lot of work with uh virtual realities I understand it. That's
2: yeah, the, you know, yeah. So, so what we want to do is sort of, you know, create some, uh, some, you know, we want to create some art using this new VR technology, right? In these spaces, and we want it to be accessible for disabled people to use. Um, so we're we hope the the hope our hope is to make that happen um, with these tech companies and to, you know, collaborate in a way
1: that can make that happen. That sounds like a great project. Yeah, we hope, we hope so. Well, thank you so much for coming. Yeah, sure. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah, this is terrific. Yeah, yeah, thanks.
0: Art Parlor is brought to you by Friends in Art and ACB Media. It airs every Sunday morning at 8 Eastern on ACB Media 1. To listen and for a full schedule, go to acbmedia.org one. Art Parlor is also available as a podcast. Just search for Art Parlor in your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at artparlor at friendsinart.org. And please feel free to check out our website, www.friendsinart.org. Thank you so much for listening and Happy New Year. We'll be back next month.